0: In today's episode, surprised by 127 degrees inclination and wellbores in different light, then helping the directional drillers with the gyro.
1: Oil and gas has always challenged technology. Now it's time for tech to challenge back. Come hear how the best minds in the industry are making those solutions a reality on the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast with your host, Mark LaCour.
0: Hey folks, before we get to our guests, real quick, leave me a review. It's the number one way to support the show and all of our shows. It takes a couple of minutes, just go to iTunes, give us a five-star if you think we're doing great, give us a one-star and tell us what we need to improve if you think we're not doing so great. And then, big shout out to Nutanix, the sponsor of the show. If you need help modernizing your data center and running applications at any scale, on-prem or in the cloud, these are the folks you want to talk to. And I'm sitting here in beautiful Houston, Texas, and I'm sitting here with uh, Rob and Adrian. How are y'all doing today?
2: Doing well, thank you. Good, thanks.
0: Yeah. And y'all work for, I want to say a little company, but you're not a little company. A little company called Data. What does GyroData do?
2: GyroData, today we do well surveying surveying as well as directional drilling.
0: Yeah. And so that directional drilling world has changed so much in the last 10 years. I actually met this driller. This was at, we were speaking to OTC earlier before we turned the microphones on. This was probably five or six years ago. And I didn't realize they used to do directional drilling in the late 60s and early 70s, but they had really no idea where the drill bit was. They would literally drop a tool with a wind-up clock down the bore, and at a certain point, it would punch a hole in the paper, and that would give them the angle they were at. And so they would kind of guess where the other end of that, that drill stem was. But, you know, it's come so far, and you all have been involved with it forever, haven't you, from the, almost the beginning?
1: We've been involved with, the, well, certainly the directional drilling part of it, for sure, because that all came into play where they actually started making measurements while drilling in the late 80s. And that was down in Pearsall, Austin Chalk, South Texas area. You're dating yourself. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) unfortunately. But anyway, the device you're speaking of is a Totco. People still run Totcos.
0: I had no idea.
1: In fact, one of my favorite stories is is one of the major operators in the world was drilling a well, and they directionally drilled it to a tangent of about 15 degrees. Then they dropped it to vertical, and they went in with a pack tool assembly, an inclination-only type device, and they were quite surprised when it ended up at 127 degrees inclination. (laughs) True story.
0: (laughs) That is crazy. So they almost made a complete roundabout circle out of it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you watch some of the drilling, they're doing some of the tight formations in the shell plays, And they sometimes try to do that on purpose to stay within their lease boundaries, right? Trying to make that circle and come back. It's amazing the stuff you can do. Can we talk a little bit more about the technology that's going on with the directional drilling? Because that's changed a lot just recently.
2: Yes. There are many, I guess, aspects of it. There is automation. There is measurements as well. So the measurement while drilling, yeah, a lot of advances on the measurement, the QC, the reliability of the data, and I guess on, on our side of the business, on the measuring with gyros as well. Gyro while drilling came out in 2003, 2004. And since then, we've been, well, launching new tools and services with the solid state technology.
0: Now, help me understand, what is the advantage to the operator in having this level of precision while you're drilling?
2: Well, there are a few, right? One is to, to verify that you follow the plan and hit the reservoir so you can produce uh, hydrocarbons. But the other one is to avoid well, drilling into, into another well. So that's obviously a big aspect of it, especially offshore. You don't want to have a, a collision with another well that will result in a blowout.
0: Yeah, and it's actually really interesting, So especially on land. You know, we need to drive more and more efficiencies for a variety of reasons. But what you're really talking about is driving efficiencies in drilling the well so you can maximize your production, aren't you?
2: Yes, correct. Yeah, if you place it in the right place, and especially if you're going to fracture the rock and try to optimize the volume, you want to have the right separation between the wells so you can, well, extract as much as possible.
0: Yeah, and in y'all's world, that space between wells that years ago had to be, you know, tens of meters or maybe even hundreds of meters, because of your technology, because your ability to use technology, you're able to get it closer and closer because you know better where you actually are.
2: That's correct. Yes. So we were able to reduce the uncertainty and then, yes, you can place the wells in the right place and, and also verify that your reservoir. Well, it's producing what you thought it was producing.
0: And that measurement while drilling part of our industry is getting to the point now where we're starting to see companies do it remotely, which I find incredible. But once again, it's driving efficiencies.
2: That's right, yeah. Because I uh, think it's related to, to having the people on the rig in addition to the safety. So being able to do things remotely and automating things as well with the measurement and the quality control Corrections. Yeah, it's a big push for that now.
0: Yeah, actually, you're right. I didn't even think about that. But that definitely impacts your HSE metrics or your lost time metrics because you don't have as many people on the actual well site. The worst that may happen with the guy back in the control center is he may trip over a chair, right? <laughs> and, and I'm not making fun of HSE metrics at all, but I mean it is inherently has to be way safer than actually being on a rig site.
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Don't spend too much in the field, but certainly, yeah, the, the having less people near the well is well, it's a good thing.
0: and Y'all have a lot of domain expertise around this. And one of the things that's happened since, say, the beginning of the downturn and say 2014 till now, and it's 2020, is a lot of the people with that domain expertise has left our industry. And so it used to be that you needed that domain expertise on your payroll. But now, while being able to do it remotely, that domain expertise can now be spread across a bunch of different operators, right? You can have the, the senior people in one facility, and they can actually help. Multiple operators do really good work.
2: That's right. And they can look at several rigs or at least several wells at the same time. That's something that before you need to have a dedicated person on location to do that. And now on a remote center, yeah, you can optimize that and have also a more consistency between operations. So you can, well, do every well following the same parameters and the same procedure without having the, to rely on one person or another to to, to do a good job. I
0: love the fact that we're starting to move towards standardization as an industry because, audience, if you don't know this, both offshore and on land, that there's no consistency. Even if you have two sister rigs offshore, one of them's got Rolls-Royce thrusters and one of them's got different brand of thrusters. But that consistency allows people to replicate what's good, which drives costs down, which then increases production. So if you're able to replicate stuff and have that consistency, that's really cool. Now, with all this work y'all are doing, y'all have to be collecting ungodly amounts of data.
2: Yes, but also because of the nature of the, the operations as a service company, most of the data stay with the, usually with, with the operator. So if we are in a pad but only on, on a couple of the wells, sometimes it's hard to to draw a conclusion and we don't know usually the end results related to maybe running casing or the actual production. So it's hard to go back and to close the loop. Also depends depends what kind of analysis you want to do. Sometimes probably take a year or so for the production to decline, or something to make a statement if you place the well in the right place or there was some other effect on the production.
0: Do you all think that we're moving to where operators are starting to want to be okay with sharing that data with their service companies? Or you think it's still, they keep it tight, close to the vest?
1: Well, you know, something I found interesting is when we started out what we call a service called microguide, and that's where we look at the high data density that you were speaking of, right? where well, we can actually analyze the wellbore every foot. We can look at it three-dimensionally, and it kind of started out as a, a study in tortuosity, which has been a buzzword for years. But we came out and started showing a lot of production people just how tortuous their wells are, especially with regards to placing a submersible pump in an area where it's going to subject that pump to a lot of bending, and it's going to fail prematurely. Right,
0: This almost sounds like science fiction. You literally are looking at every foot?
1: We look at it every foot, and we can draw a three-dimensional tube of what the wellbore looks like. So we can give them a lot more information. And from that, which we started about five years ago, producing the, these results and, and sharing with our clients. And from that time, there's been a lot of buzzwords going on. In fact, Adrian was at a conference here recently, and there were several papers given on tortuosity directly affecting production. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adrian, but it's interesting. We actually collect a lot of data and look at the well bores in a little bit different light than traditional drilling where you've got a, a data point every ninety-two foot or a stand, if you will. Yeah. Right. So that's something that we're really proud of. And for the production people, they really like it. And for the drilling people, sometimes not so much because we show them the inefficiencies in the deeper, cheaper process, if you will.
0: That's right. So you're literally pulling the covers aside and everybody can see what's really going on.
1: That's right. And it's not something that we do intentionally because, you know, the the drilling guys are getting a data point every stand. They do the best they can with the data they've got, right? But we're just showing them what happens in between those two data points.
2: An interesting aspect of that is uh, the appreciation is different depending on the operator and the goals that they got for that particular project or or well. So if they're trying to sell that lease to somebody else to produce it, they they don't care too much. (laughs) But if if someone is looking at the long term and the whole field, then they try to take care of that and drill a well... Yes, yeah, trade well with the high quality, so they don't have issues with running casing and tortuosity and production. But again, there are a lot of different operators have different goals and different business models. So for some, it's producing the first year or not producing it at all and selling it. And some others are looking at the long term. So. This information and the goals are, are not necessarily the same for everybody.
0: Yeah, I can see how a drilling contractor may not want you to expose everything. But the truth is that transparency eventually helps everybody. Even if somebody's trying to flip a well, whoever buys it at some point down that chain is going to go in production. And that transparency and that ability to understand the reality of what you're getting to just eventually helps everybody. But I can see how somebody would not want you to show everything. But so what, right? That's what y'all do for a living and you're good at it. So I know y'all are big in the Permian. There's a lot of stuff going on in the Permian with things like well spacing, child wells, orphan wells, that sort of stuff. But y'all actually help, if I understand the process correctly, y'all actually help operators maximize the time that that well bore is in the pay zone, right? Without having to worry about cannibalizing another well because your data and your tools allow you to drill that precisely.
2: Yes. And, and well, being able to, to follow the plan and put the well where you where supposed need to. it to be. Yeah, that's the way that we are helping that process.
0: So I know Joward Data does more than just that. So what else do y'all do? Well, actually, we have a rotary steerable, which
1: is designed to do exactly what you were just talking about. With a typical slide-rotate pattern, they're constantly correcting and making corrections. They're too high in the formation, they want to go, they've got to go down. They're too low, they've got to go up. They've got swings left and right when they're drilling these wells. So they end up with a lot of porpoising and corkscrewing which causes production problems, right? And we've got a rotary steerable that's designed to mitigate that and drill a straighter oil bore, keep you centered better in your formation to eliminate a lot of the production problems that are associated with the gas burps from the up and downs and, and a lot of different anomalies. I don't totally understand. I'm not a production engineer, but... These are things that you read about and I've been told about by a lot of production people since we've started doing this kind of work.
0: Yeah, and let me back you a little bit. If the audience doesn't, because remember, this is the Only Gas Tech podcast, if the audience doesn't understand what a steerable is, can you explain that?
1: Sure. So our rotary steerable is actually a closed-loop system. It's got a magnetometer accelerometer package that's about six to eight feet from the bit itself, and every 90 seconds, it's pre-programmed to five different program settings of uh, relative to the inclination and the azimuth of the wellbore. And every 90 seconds, it takes a look and it says, what is my inclination and azimuth compared to the inclination and azimuth that I'm programmed to hold at this particular point in time. And then it makes an adjustment automatically to bend the shaft slightly and point the bit in the direction it needs to go, up, down, left, or right. So it's constantly doing that every 90 seconds as opposed to a lot of systems that are open loop. They've got a magnetic package behind the bit typically it could be the mwd that could be 60 feet back so they don't know where that bit went until they've drilled 60 feet ahead to where the magnetic package is where the bit was so it's a closed loop system in the fact that somebody at surface is looking at it and they're steering that bit and closing the loop as opposed to having a totally automated
0: system like ours that does it electronically that is so cool where have we got to as an industry where that 60 foot down makes a difference because Ten years ago, that 60-foot would have not made any difference whatsoever. I mean, we're, you're not talking about being so precise in formations. That's just insane. It's awesome. Though. Awesome work.
1: Well, I read something the other day, and this guy has been in the oil field a long time, probably as long as I have. And he made the comment, he said, I remember when I first started out as a directional driller, he said, if you put more than a three-degree dog leg in a well, they fired you. He said, now if you can't put more than an eight to a 10 degree dog leg in the well, they fire you.
0: <laughs> it's so funny, but yeah, I, I've never even thought about that, but you're right. We've come so far. It's Stephen, a marketing guy sitting here. He's not on the microphone because he wouldn't even put a microphone in front of him. But Steven, when I got started in this industry in the eighties, you would measure a roughnecks experience by how many fingers he was missing. And I tell that story to people now, they say I'm crazy, but that's how it was, you know, we've come so far. It's become so safe to work in this industry that now that is no longer a sign of experience whatsoever. So my next question for you is this. It sounds like this is a way that you actually help operators speed up their drilling. Do you actually help them complete wells quicker with the steerables and with the information, the data you'll have?
1: With the rotary steerable, that's true. Yeah, we've had a lot of record wells when we're drilling with that, right? Every time you, you put a slide in or a directional hand has to stop rotating to make a correction, that costs time. It slows down ROP. So with the rotary steerable, you're constantly rotating that assembly. We have an anti-rotation device on the outside that grabs the wall, rotates at at a very slow speed with our directional package in it so we can keep track of where we are, but it's full bore going through. So you're constantly circulating at a four bowl capacity, unlike a push the bit system that's using some of that mud to actually push paddles out. So it's using a little bit of that mud flow. We're not using that mud flow. It's full bore. The mud's going through full velocity and we're rotating that bit. In fact, a lot of times we do what we call motor assist, where we actually put a mud motor on top of the rotary steerable so that not only is the drill pipe rotating at a certain RPM, the mud motor's rotating at an even faster RPM that speeds up the bit. Wow. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of dynamics that are happening. I just
0: learned something. I, I didn't realize that they use part of the pressure for the mud to actually do that work sometimes. I did not know that at all. So then your mud's not being as effective. Does the mud engineer then have to change his mud formula? Because the way it's being used. I'm just curious.
2: Yeah,
1: to be honest with you, I can't answer that question. Yeah, I'm not fine. a mud guy. Yeah. yeah. So, no, on
2: uh, the yeah, just to add to some other aspect on the gyro side. When we started, I mean, we were running the gyros on a wild line, so you have to stop the drilling in order to obtain that. And many times when you have magnetic interference, you have to run a gyro. Today we can well, we first came up with the gyro while drilling tool, which is similar to to an MWD, but just a, measuring with the gyro at connection. And recently we launched the, well, the solid-state gyro while drilling that has the advantage that it takes the survey in less time. So it's more transparent. Well, we take a survey during the connection without taking usually any extra quick time.
0: So you said solid-state gyro. Does that mean the gyros you all used before literally had a mechanical...
2: Yeah, it was a spinning mass gyro, yes.
0: How small is that gyro? Just out of curiosity, have you actually seen the package? Like not the whole package, the actual spinning part. How small is that gyro?
2: Yeah, we have different systems, but I mean, we have a... The beginning, the the one from the 80 was also two inches diameter.
1: Yeah, it was two inch diameter. Yeah.
2: The smallest pressure housing was two and a quarter. So the latest one that we developed was a three quarter of an inch gyro spinning very fast to have the enough inertia and angular momentum to measure the earth rotation and produce measurements.
0: Now, when y'all come up with this, the solid state gyro, is this a gyroscope that is off the shelf somewhere and y'all incorporate it into what y'all are doing? Or do y'all actually have to design one?
2: No, we worked together with a manufacturer. We tested something that they have already available for the aerospace industry. And we saw the potential and we changed the specs because we didn't need many of the features that they need for an airplane, but we needed to survive downhole we need the temperature rate in the shock and vibration. So we worked with them for a few years. Well, I came out with a sensors specifically designed for the oil industry.
0: Yeah, I never even thought about where that gyroscope would come from. That makes total sense. So aerospace has the same need for that type of measurement, right? Because you need to know where you are when you're in three-dimensional space. But it also has to withstand temperatures, extremes, vacuums, shocks, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So <laughs> duh, that kind of makes sense that you'd find something like that. So, when y'all first introduced the new electronic gyroscope, did you get a little feedback from the operators? Like, this is something new? Because you know, our industry hates new stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, there is that. And we're still validating. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some companies, they have different levels of, I guess, yeah, validation, or they want us to, to run in test runs or run with the conventional system that is proven already. But so we can compare the data and show the results and. Prove to them that this is still as good as the previous one.
0: Yeah, I love the progress we're making in this industry as far as technology. So the other thing I I know you all do is you all actually do monitoring for your clients. Now, is that monitoring, I'm guessing it's done remotely. Is this like a 24-7 type of operation you all do for your clients?
1: That's correct. We've got what we call an ROC or Remote Operating Center that's staffed 24 hours a day. So we have the capability of helping out the directional individuals of ours that are on the rigs making magnetic corrections which is a, a thing that's been become very popular taking the raw data from the accelerometer magnetometer packages and massaging that data to improve its accuracy obviously with our new solid state gyro those corrections are no longer necessary so that's a goal that we're working towards basically is maybe someday you know being able to replace the magnetometer packages
0: so with this information you get from the solid state gyro, it allows you to skip that other step, which once again goes back to my thing that you actually help your clients drill wells quicker. Right? If, I mean, if you're skipping a step... It speeds things up. But the other thing I want, so y'all must be doing some big data analytics around this. You all must have some tools that are looking at all this data. Are y'all doing this in real time or near real time or or no? You have to catch it somewhere and go back and do the analytics
2: on it. One of the beauties of the gyro is that compared to, to the magnetometer, with the magnetometer, you measure the air magnetic field and it's something that is not stable and you have to model that. And there are different degrees of uh, accuracy for those models, depends how much you want to spend on the model With the gyro, we measure the earth rotation, and that's a constant value. So we measure, and whatever we measure is pretty much the result. So, I mean, we do a lot of analysis of the data. One of the, I guess, disadvantages of the gyro is that, well, it measures rotation or movement. So if there is a lot of rotation, that affects the quality of the data. But other than that, there is not a lot of post-processing or, or higher analysis. You just measure and then you get your results.
0: So I get it. So what I thought would be a big data problem is actually the opposite. You're only generating the data you need. Yeah. You're not generating all this other data that you have to filter through to get what you need. You're only generating the data you need. Correct, yes, that is so cool, Adrian, I know you got to get out of here in a few minutes. We're getting close to winding down the show so we you, everybody get back on. but if people wanted to learn more about gyro data, where should they go?
2: Well, they can go to to our website and I think we also we have a, a presence in LinkedIn. I'm not too big on the social media, but I have my profile in LinkedIn and if you yeah. Look for my name, it should be there, or just the company, Jarrah Data.
0: Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes, both to Gyro Data and to Rob and Adrian's LinkedIn profiles. So you can go check them out. I know Steven's not saying anything, but he's big into social media. And y'all actually, y'all's social media presence is robust, right? So even though it may not be a big thing for you as an industry, it's important now and it's gonna be really important in the future. So y'all are doing really good work out there. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know you gotta get out of here. Real quick, people, if this is the point of the show, we do the product reviews. I have no product to review this time. Just remember, it's something kind of gadgety. Please don't not send me your mug pumps or your air compressors. That's just too big. My neighbors think something's wrong with me. other thing, you've heard me talk about the street team before. It's a global all-volunteer group. If you want to be a member, just go to Facebook, look up OGG and Street Team. You basically help us with our social media and you get some free swag out of that. And Back again to Nutanix, sponsor of the show. They're doing something really cool. They're giving away these JBL Flip 4 speakers. I actually have one that I didn't get from Nutanix, but I have the same speaker. It's awesome. If you want to go win one, go to the show notes, click on it. We give away one a week. Or you can try to remember Nutanix.com forward slash OG Tech Podcast. Go enter and win. And then while you're online, go to, speaking on LinkedIn, go to our LinkedIn group. We're over I think, 40,000 people following us on LinkedIn. Go check it out on LinkedIn. All right, guys, this has been awesome. Actually, I think we're going to have you on a couple of our other shows because your story crosses over to many parts of the oil and gas industry. So I look forward to hearing you, I think, on the Offshore Show and the Onshore Show and maybe even the Industry Leader Show. But thanks for having me out here and thanks for coming on the show. Thank Thank you you, you very much. So, folks, we're making sure that you don't get left behind one episode at a time. And here are the events on deck.
3: Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for February. We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March, and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders, and they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th. For DokaruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit dokarucon.dokaru.com. And that is D O Q A R U C O N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events.
1: Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Temp Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.